Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You are listening to the TLS, where Owen Matthews writes Winning on the Home Front. The Triumph of the Kremlin Propaganda Machine In the 26th of May 2023 issue Owen Matthews was Newsweek's Moscow Bureau Chief. His latest book, Overreach, The Inside Story of Putin's War on Ukraine, has been shortlisted for the 2023 Pushkin House Book Prize. Is the invasion of Ukraine Vladimir Putin's war or Russia's war? How has the Kremlin managed to convince such an apparently large swath of Russians that its aggression against Kyiv is right and just, and maintain that support despite sanctions, setbacks, and massacres? These are the questions posed by Ian Garner and Jade McGlynn in their urgently relevant, highly readable studies. Garner's Z-Generation into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth is a brilliantly detailed portrait of the ideological and cultural atmosphere engineered by the Russian state media, and church. The unholy trinity that underpins Putin's messianic, apocalyptic, and spiritual goals of Eurasian domination. It is a chilling and essential book, based on hundreds of online conversations with young people, both those involved in the new wave of Kremlin-sponsored patriotic youth movements and the depressingly small number opposed to them. Garner's account opens with a pen portrait of the 19-year-old Alina, whose life before the invasion could have belonged to any American or European teenager who loved their phone and fancied big-city life over provincial tedium. Unlike most of her Western counterparts, however, her social media feeds are filled with viciously nationalist and anti-Ukrainian memes. How did Alina, a seemingly westernized, Hollywood-loving, and carefree teen with dreams of a modern career in the buzzing and cosmopolitan hub of Moscow, turn into an online fascist? Seemingly overnight, the author asks. And what next for Russia and for the world if a generation of furious, fascist Alinas grows up to take charge of the world's biggest nuclear power? The answer to the first question is simple. The Kremlin's propaganda machine consists not just of hysterical pundits on television, but also of a nexus of social media and youth organizations of fiendish sophistication and effectiveness. Attached to ironic internet memes, the warmongering world of the youth army is transformed into something familiar, fun, and even fascinating, Garner writes. 
This is the language of fascist youth groups. Collectivity, physicality, war, and the future. Delivered using the aesthetic forms and fandoms of 21st century social media. The frontline messengers of Putinism, then, are distinguishable from Western youth influencers only in the context of their message, not in its form. Nikita Nagorny is the Olympic gold-winning gymnast who heads Putin's Youth Army, a paramilitary group for the digital generation. His feed to his 1.3 million TikTok followers is indistinguishable from that of any other young fitness influencer. Yet, alongside inspirational videos, snippets of his intense gym sessions, behind-the-scenes lifestyle shots, exchanges and selfies with other athletes, and training and workout advice, one finds images of Nagorny in uniform with his followers, whom he praises as ordered rows of tunics, marching through Red Square. For Russia's Z generation, named for the white Z symbol painted on Russian tanks, the fascist rally, glittering, alluring, ordering, is always accessible with the stroke of a thumb across a smartphone screen. Never mind that the actual message is, as Garner puts it, an ahistorical bricolage of czarist, Soviet, Christian, and nationalist themes, a nonsensical ideology that combines contradictory elements of the Soviet past, apocalyptical spirituality, and material spread directly by propagandists. Its effectiveness is in its fast-paced postmodern presentation. That's fascism today, Garner writes. It turns up and spits out memes, tropes, and other transitory ideas. The second element of the Kremlin's devastatingly successful battle for the hearts and minds of Russia's youth has been a huge and well-organized plethora of online groups and youth clubs to suit every personality. These include Real Ukraine, Anti-Terror Z, Z for Victory, The Russian Spring, Strength and Truth, Victory Volunteers, and the Christian group Sorok Sorokov, or 4040s. But the largest one is Nagorny's Youth Army, which has a $200 million annual Kremlin-funded budget and more than 1,000 offices around the country. It aims to have 3.25 million members by 2030. Members of the Youth Army wear distinctive khaki uniforms with red berets and engage in military parades and weapons training. At the same time, kindergartners, schools, colleges, and universities have been ordered to teach a new patriotic curriculum corral their children into Z-shapes for photo shoots and encourage them to join the Kremlin's youth groups. The state is rampaging through childhood, militarizing every aspect of youth, writes Garner. Anything and everything is being rewritten to fit the fascist narrative, including the much-loved Soviet cartoon character Chaboroshka, who has been turned into a Z-uniformed soldier. Garner's account has also sharply observed cultural history of Putin-era Russia tracing the evolution of themes and images in films such as Alexei Balabanov's film Brother 2, released in 2000, with its cynical, macho worldview, via Vitaly Lukin's breakthrough, 2006, a war movie set in Chechnya that was one of the first to glorify the modern Russian military, to Fyodor Bondarchuk's 2013 film Stalingrad, which overtly linked the legacy of the Second World War to contemporary Russian youth. Importantly, Garner also outlines the convoluted path by which Russia in 2022 came to embody the darkest elements of 20th century fascism, a place where an array of ahistorical and quasi-religious thinking, imagery, and myths support a total militarization of the state and a mission to wipe out a racial enemy, the Ukrainian people, and reconquer a lost empire. Before 2012, the radical orthodox nationalist ideas 
of thinkers such as Alexander Dugan, had been confined to the fringes of political discourse. But as Putin faced the challenge of mass demonstrations following his return to the presidency that year, the Kremlin reached out not only to Dugan, but also to nationalist groups such as Spartak Moscow's Fratria, a gang of violent football fans. As the state was inviting extremists into organized youth groups and into the apparatus of government, it was also cultivating a far more extreme form of nationalist violence that spiraled from Moscow's streets onto the internet and back again. Both Garner and Jade McGlynn know Putin's Russia too well to offer a rosy outlook. Garner's most optimistic scenario is that the Ukraine war is built on fragile myths and that military failure could breed disillusionment in Putin's shoddy, incompetent government. Russia in 2022 was closer to the USSR of 1989 than the Germany of 1939, he writes. But McGlynn, in her thoughtful Russia's war, warns that while the war is over or about Ukraine, it cannot be solved in Ukraine because its roots lie in the Russian political and societal imagination of what their own country is and what it must be. Even after military disappointment or the death of Putin, the resentment and anti-Western paranoia that shaped the Putinist worldview will live on. Russia's war is an account of how the Kremlin weaponized the politics of memory to create something more than mere propaganda. Orwell's style, Putin's people have managed to mold both the past and the future through the control of the present. McGlynn points out that the objects of the Kremlin's propaganda participate actively in their own brainwashing. The 80% of Russians who say they support Putin believe in large part she avers because they want to believe. Propaganda doesn't work by persuading people that this or that event is true because of this or that fact, she writes. It works by reinforcing people's emotions and prejudices, confusing them so they think there is no truth and just fall back on what they do know or instinctively feel is true, making them think everyone has a point so they should just stick with their side, or that there is absolutely no point in saying anything as the propaganda is everywhere and you are the odd one out. The phenomenon of a large constituency of self-deluding believers fueled by historical fantasies and resentment of various aspects of modernity and globalization is by no means confined to modern Russia. But in Russia, the formula has proved unusually successful. This is not, McGlynn argues, because of some genetic Russian exceptionalism, but because of the lack of a widespread culture of critical thinking. Russian society is historically based on belonging and social conformity and the decade of poverty and national humiliation that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union left a deep scar not only on Putin personally, but on the whole generation that lived through it. The result is the deadly cocktail of resentment, resentment, and desensitization that underpins Russia's especially aggressive form of patriotism. Denegatory attitudes towards Ukrainians, inferiority complex towards the West, refusal to acknowledge historical realities, and conflation of victims with perpetrators in the past and present. These feelings existed well before Putin came to power, as regular polls by the independent Levada Center in the 1990s clearly showed. But as McGlynn argues, the not-so-secret sauce that allowed the Kremlin to transform these aggrieved opinions into a mobilized, war-worshipping society in the run-up to the 2022 invasion was the addition of a vivid cast of external enemies. So who is Russia fighting then? The West or Ukraine? Yes, them, both of them. And lots of other people besides. Satanists, drug addicts, liberal fascist cancel culture, pagans, Russians' own unerring sense of nobility, LGBTQ plus parades, 
migratory birds carrying genetic bioweapons, NATO, militant Baltic gays. Such a variegated list of enemies has given rise to a similarly incoherent set of aims. Reading Russian media, you understand that the Russian army will give Ukrainians life by killing them. The key to the success of the Kremlin's propaganda message lies in its unleashing of dozens of narratives at once. The intent is precisely to bamboozle and overwhelm, and to assert that, in a threatening and confusing world, all that Russians can really rely on are the familiar tropes of national identity and greatness, historical memory, and, of course, the protective power of the Putin regime. Whereas Garner and McGlynn ground their books in deeply rooted reporting on Russia itself, Alexander Mihailovich and Alexander Etkind used the Russia-Ukraine war as a kind of Rorschach blot on which to project their respective theories. Mihailovich's illiberal vanguard, populist elitism in the United States and Russia, explores the manipulation of myths and resentments by ambitious political classes in both countries. Etkin's main thesis in Russia Against Modernity is that Putin's war is an operation against the modern world of climate awareness, energy transition, and digital labor. Illiberal Vanguard defines popular elitism as both a distinct ideology and a legacy of empires, an ideology that glorifies the singular state as the only institution that can stand against the nightmare of modernity. The central villains of Mihailovich's book are, on the American side, Donald Trump and the protesters who stormed the Capitol building on January 6, 2021, and, on the Russian one, Putin and his political apparatus. What these acolytes of populist elitism share is that they have always been open about who they are. They are people who possess the gift of bodying forth into language the feelings of the common folk. This popular touch is undoubtedly a skill common to Trump and Putin, but it was also shared by Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and Napoleon. Historically, every popularly supported elite, from Robespierre's revolutionaries to Mussolini's blackshirts, has considered itself in some way the voice of the people. Mihailovich offers a thoughtful comparison of America's Proud Boys, France's Rassemblement National, Italy's Lega Nord, Hungary's Fidesz, Poland's Law and Justice Party, India's Bharatiya Janata Party, and Putin's United Russia, focusing on their shared narratives of historical grievance, their communal identification as bulwarks against a globalized world, and their generalized resentment of socially liberal cultural values. But he also has an unfortunate tendency to conflate people or groups whose differences exceed their similarities. While Alexander Dugin, Edward Limonov, and Olga Skabeeva have Putin in common, they occupy very distinct parts of Russia's propaganda ecosystem. Dugin is a mythical Christian fundamentalist. Limonov was a punk libertarian ultra-nationalist writer, and Skabeeva is a paid TV propagandist who says whatever her producers tell her to. The Kremlin's conversion to outright mystical ultranationalism was neither gradual nor inevitable, but an abrupt shift in the wake of the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Prior to that rightward lurch, Putin's spin doctors had wavered through a succession of syncretic ideologies composed according to the dictates of political expediency. 
Unlike the truly committed fascists of the 20th century, Putin is an ideological chameleon. Etkin describes Russia Against Modernity as a lean book about lean modernity and its pompous, archaic enemies. His book casts the current conflict in Ukraine as a clash between two civilizational trends. Paleomodernity, which defines progress in terms of the expanding use of nature, the more resources were used and the more energy consumed, the higher was a civilization. And Gaia modernity, his own concept, which argues that the further advancement of humanity requires less energy used and less matter consumed for every new unit of work and pleasure. This thesis is not wrong, insofar as Putin is a prominent climate skeptic, and the Russian economy is firmly founded on the export of hydrocarbons. Etkind is also correct that dependence on oil wealth has for Russia and all other petrol-dependent countries proved politically and socially poisonous. Economic growth in the exporting petrostates went hand-in-hand with the incompetence of the ruling elite, who consolidated their power in order to amass even more wealth. He writes, Etkind argues that the Russian elite perceived the advance of history as an existential threat that would damage the oil and gas trade, depriving Russia of its main source of income. However, to identify climate change as a root cause of Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine is eccentric, to say the least. Putin's elite see the threat posed by the West first and foremost as unabashedly 19th-century terms as a battle for spheres of influence, the positioning of armies and the overthrow of regimes. The West may be striving to reduce its consumption of hydrocarbons, but Russia's customers in the developing world are increasing theirs. The book is also full of wrong-headed assertions. When Russia launched its all-out war, the Europeans said goodbye to Russian oil, Putin's officials to their yachts in Moscow, hipsters to their smoothies, says Etkind. Not true. European imports of Russian oil products, especially diesel, actually increased in 2022 through trade via third countries, especially India. A few oligarchs' yachts were seized. The vast majority were not. And Moscow hipsters are still very well supplied with smoothies, as anyone who has been to the city in the past year could confirm. Moreover, the biggest protest Russia saw during the 2010s was certainly not sparked by a plan to ship millions of tons of residential waste from Moscow to the pine forests of the Arkhangelsk region, but by Putin's return to power in 2012. By 2017, Russia's stabilization fund had not lost a half of its assets, and in 2022, most of the money remaining in it was not, as Etkin claims, seized by sanctions. The EU is not a composite state, but a confederation. The book reaches its strangest flowering in the final chapter. I am not calling for the collapse of the Russian Federation, Etkin states. I am predicting it. Writing in the past tense after a notional total defeat of Russia, the author foretells that Russia's rulers had to move on. But first they had to pay for the colossal damage they had done to their neighbor, and this used up all the reserves they had not already wasted. Russia would never sell oil again either. People abroad had somehow learned to live without oil. Both are attractive fancies, but hardly likely or immediate ones, especially because Etkind appears to have forgotten that Russia possesses more nukes than any other country in the world. A peace conference was held, modeled after the Paris Peace Conference, 1919-1920. In Etkin's fantasy, it dismembers Russia. The new countries remembered their long period of subservience to the Federation with contempt, 
Above all, they were grateful to the country that had defeated the Federation in the war. It is as if Etkind has entirely misremembered the actual effects of the Treaty of Versailles. Such ill-grounded dreams may comfort some, but others, such as Ian Garner, Jade McGlynn, and their readers, can be under no illusion that Russia's anger and aggression will disappear quickly. Putin's regime has proved to be devastatingly effective at replacing its future with a perverse version of Russia's and Europe's darkest past. Defeating it is a civilizational problem for the whole free world. You are listening to the TLS, where Owen Matthews writes, Winning on the Home Front, The Triumph of the Kremlin Propaganda Machine, in the 26th of May 2023 issue. It was read by Sam Scholl for NOAA.